This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Equalizer podcast. Once again, I'm Pradeep Katri, and again, I'm joined by John Halloran. How are you doing, John? I'm great. How are you? Not so bad. Not so bad. So today's podcast is going to be a little bit forward-looking, in part because it wasn't the liveliest weeks in American women's soccer, but it's okay. We'll be forgiving. There are a lot of lively weeks. It's okay if we get a little bit of a break here or there. But... It will be interesting pretty soon in a couple of days that She Believes Cup starts. And so we're going to spend the first part of this podcast looking forward to that a little bit. There were a couple of changes on the U.S. roster in the last couple of days. Sam U.S. is still recovering from an injury she picked up uh, during the January friendly, so she won't be with the team. Instead, Jalen Howell will replace her, who is already training with the team but wasn't technically part of the roster. And Alana Cook won't be joining the team for the She Leaves Cup in Florida, and she was replaced by Casey Kruger, formerly known as Short, um, because of a new FIFA rule that allows teams to not release players if at any point they require more than five days of quarantining. So I don't think those roster moves make that much of a difference for the U.S. team, but... You know, I think Casey Kruger is a little bit of a bigger deal than Jalen Howell. Yeah, I think it's an interesting choice because, I mean, Casey herself said that she thought she was basically out of the picture at this point. I think this is her first call up in a year. There's always a little bit of interesting, there's always like small choices, I think, that Vlad Goyndanovsky makes with his rosters that are a little bit interesting. Like last time we were together, we were talking about how Jane Campbell played. So, you know. Maybe these things won't make a difference. Maybe they're just good talking points for us on podcasts. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we're but, probably talking about the fringes of the roster anyway, right? I mean, yeah. the, the, these players, I don't think, are right there for cracking cracking the 18. There might be a little bit more of a chance for Kruger, just because I do think that the team is a bit unsettled on who their last outside back will be. But uh, to think, you know, Jalen Howell would would – jump over Mewis, either of the Mewises, to be honest, because I think Christy Mewis is probably the, the in that bubble zone. Uh, is, yeah, probably just not going to happen. Yeah. But one genuinely new thing about the She Believes Cup this year is that it's a whole new roster of opponents. Um, I believe all of the teams this time are making their first appearance at the She Believes Cup. Canada, Brazil, and Argentina. Canada and Brazil are, um, if the Olympics happen, they'll be there. And But Canada is actually without a number of players themselves. Uh, Christine Sinclair, Diana Matheson, Aaron McLeod, Bianca St. George, uh, Kadisha Buchanan, Jordan Huitema, Ashley Lawrence. Only a few, right? <laughs> yeah, only seven. 
Yeah, the some of them are injured. the The European based players were released were not released by their clubs for the same through the same rule that Alana Cook didn't make it. Um, replacing the injured three are uh, Lindsay Agnew, Victoria Pickett, and Sarah Stratagakis. I believe I'm pronouncing that right, but if I'm wrong, feel free to correct me. Uh, and that goes to anybody listening too. Um, we talked about this last time we were together, John, about how this, uh, the U.S. team, you expect them to probably win all of these games. I think even with a depleted Canada side, it's more likely. But of these three teams, which do you think will give the U.S. the biggest challenge? I think it's probably Brazil. And to be honest with you, that's the one I'm most excited to watch too, because I just want to see what Pia does with that team. I think that whether it was when she was coaching the U S or later on coaching Sweden, we we've seen that she can take different approaches and she can be very open and she can be very pragmatic. And um, I just think that Brazil, I I don't know if you feel the same, but, I think a lot of people feel like Brazil is one of those teams that's always right there on the edge. It could, could just be a little bit better. And uh, it is, uh, I think, uh, interesting and something that I'm excited to see about whether or not Pia can be the person who kind of takes them to that next level. Yeah, that's, that's the match I'm thinking about, too. I think it might be the first time this Brazil team under Pia has faced the U.S., I mean, obviously she's coached against the team before, but yeah, that's the one that really sticks out to me because that was a hiring that was supposed to signal this real commitment from the Brazilian Federation that they were actually interested in achieving something with a women's team that, like you said, and I agree with you, always feels like it's on the cusp of accomplishing something or is always in the conversation good enough to accomplish something. And I think generally what I'm feeling during this entire tournament, that it's in, in, it's an opportunity for a lot of us to just reintroduce ourselves to the in, to in, in national teams. Considering the pandemic, we just, it, they've been playing sporadically. So, I mean, I haven't watched Brazil play in a while. I don't think I've watched Canada play in a while either. Argentina, I don't think I've watched played since the, uh, I haven't watched them play since the world cup either. So I think this will probably be an opportunity to get more international soccer back into its rhythm. And I think at least from my perspective, I'll be able to watch a bunch of these teams again. Argentina is a really interesting inclusion for me. They were obviously added after Japan withdrew, but I think, I don't think Argentina, they won't be going to the world cup. I don't think they're there probably to pose as big of a test for the U S I think this is probably I think about their inclusion as something that will be great for them more than it'll be great for any of their opponents. Yeah, you would hope so. But I feel like, and I, I know some other people have pointed this out, you have these feelings every couple of years where you you think that a team is about to take this this step forward or that their federation is getting serious and then there's just never any follow-up. So it's tough to get excited about that. Like we see that in CONCACAF qualifiers right we see the team that overachieves or we see you know Jamaica plays with a lot of heart and then you think oh well now they're gonna get serious about this and start supporting this team and then they just don't then these teams go like a year and a half without even playing a match 
Um, And I feel like Argentina is well in that boat because we know that there have been some some documented problems with their federation and how they treat their their women's side. And and some of the individual players have come out and, and made those made those issues public. I mean, maybe, but like I said, you just can only get excited about these these potential turning points so many times before you realize that some of these countries just are never going to get serious about this. Yeah. Yeah. That's why, I mean, that's why I still think these games will be a better test for them than it will be for any of their opponents, but you're right. There's a massive difference between, Oh, Hey, Argentina is playing Canada, Brazil, and the U S this week. And Oh, the Argentina, the Argentina Federation is going to take their team seriously for once. And I mean, we all thought, you know, with the World Cup, maybe they would have that opportunity, but they're not going to the Olympics. I mean, for a crappy federation that there, who needs like, I don't know, very like extreme incentive, I guess, a team not going to the Olympics is probably not going to push them to be like, hey, maybe we should pay attention to these uh, to this team and invest in them and give them an opportunity to succeed. I mean, I don't think that she believes Cup is going to do that either, but. Yeah, probably not. I'd love to be wrong. I mean, that'd be great, right? I mean, yeah. to see whether it's Argentina or any of these other teams start to take it a little bit more serious. We know even Canada's had a lot of issues in terms of their youth structure and identifying talent and promoting talent. And people have complained quite a bit about, about their, their setup as well. And obviously I think they're light years ahead of where Argentina is at, but um, these are not, these are not unique issues among any one federation with their women's side. And I mean, we were just talking about Brazil, maybe trying to show some progress. We don't really know how, I mean, what I'm trying to say is it's hard to give a lot of federations, a lot of credit, even if they're hiring good qualified managers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think even, I mean, even the U.S. team can complain about their federation. So, I mean, I didn't plan on this podcast being a, uh, a, a having a segment on look at how bad uh, people treat their women's national teams. But, well, what are you going to do? It's a women's soccer podcast. It does come up way too frequently. Um, I guess we can pivot back to the U.S. team for a minute. Do you think... Is there anything new that you're looking for? Because honestly, I think at this point, I feel like we have a very good idea of what this this is at 23 players and their fringes. Yeah, I think the interesting part with Mewis not being part of the group is how they how they decide to set up the midfield, um, because. I think we've just gotten used to her, which is kind of a surprise in and of itself because heading into the 2019 World Cup, nobody really thought that she was a regular starter. But now, so you've got Ertz, you've got Haran, you've got Lavelle, assuming she's healthy. I know there have been some questions about how healthy she is exactly because of some limited opportunities over in England. But, um, you know, does that mean that Christy Mewis becomes the starter? Or does it mean that we get to see Macario in the midfield, which is something we didn't get to see last time, which was kind of a surprise, right? She played all those minutes up top, whereas a lot of us were expecting to see her play as a 10. So um, how does Vlatko line up the team? And then what insight does that give us into what he's thinking? 
who is the, the fourth midfielder if you don't have Mewis or who's the fifth even. Yeah. And I mean, I have to imagine the forward line and the shape will change a little bit now that Alex Morgan is back. Um, I mean, Tobin Heath won't be involved. She's injured. She'll be out for a little while. But, yeah, so the forward line might change a little bit there. But everybody else who was involved last time during January's around, I don't think there was too much roster changeover. You're going to get to see who starts between Lloyd and and Morgan, too, uh, at that nine, which, uh, of course, is going to – Let's just say it'll be interesting to see what happens and then, of course, what the result of that is, because neither of those players uh, is is the type of player that's going to be happy not starting. And, um, you know, unless we see something unique with Macario back at the nine, we're probably going to see one of them get two starts, uh, two out of the three starts. Yeah, and I think this is the first time since Alex Morgan went on a maternity leave and therefore the first time during Vlatko and Ganoski's time with the team, that the two of them are actually competing for that spot. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, I I actually haven't looked at that specifically, but it's just, this is the battle. We know that this has been brewing since since the 2019 World Cup. And I think Lloyd thought that when Morgan went on maternity leave that she would be the starter at the 2020 Olympics. And I think she probably would have been too. But obviously those those games got delayed by a year, which gave Morgan the opportunity to, you know, get an extra year of recovery from her pregnancy. And uh, we also know Lloyd wasn't happy about sitting the bench in Canada. So um, and now you're even even coming to a more uh, narrow roster with 18 versus 23 players. So this is just, uh, you know, if if you're not a party to it as an observer. This is, this is a fun thing uh, to, to get to observe. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine it's going to be fun for them though. Or Vlatko Andonovsky. Maybe it will be fun for him. I don't know. I doubt it actually. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So my prediction I think is pretty straightforward. I think I said it already. I'm pretty sure the U S is going to win all of their games. Um, I know you said Brazil might give them the toughest test, but do you agree with me in that assessment? <laughs> I, I think it's most likely that they win all three, but you're, I would also say that if anybody has a chance to, you know, pick up a draw or maybe even maybe uh, beat them, it would be Brazil. I don't think that's going to happen, but I think they're the one that are best equipped to do it. Yeah. And just a note, by the way, for everybody listening, all of these games are going to be broadcast across the Fox Sports um TV channels, actually, even the not U.S. games, which I think is a first, will all be on TV. So it'll be really a great opportunity to watch all of them over the course of a week. So I think that covers the She Believes Cup, which starts in a couple of days. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll meet you on the flip side. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Equalizer podcast. We'll be right back to that in a minute, but just want to make sure that you're aware of our other podcast from the Equalizer network, Kicking Back. It's one that I host, and each week we talk to personalities from across the sport of women's soccer, coaches, players, executives, plenty of great guests throughout season one from U.S. coaches, Vlatko Anonofsky, Jill Ellis, to players like Crystal Dunn, Becky Sauerbrunn, 
NWSL Commissioner Lisa Baird. So many great guests. And we're coming up on Season 2 pretty soon, and you are not going to want to miss what we have in store for you. So go ahead and check out Kicking Back. If you're listening on a podcast platform right now, you can find us there as well. We're on all the podcast platforms, and we're looking forward to another exciting season of really in-depth interviews and fun interviews with our latest guests. That's it for me, and let's get you back to the Equalizer podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Equalizer podcast. Before I continue, I'd just like to invite you all to rate, subscribe, and review. These are things that we like as podcast makers, so if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it. Um, but before we continue on our forward-looking uh, episode, I'm going to do a tiny recap of what happened in the FAWSL. Um, there were a lot of matches over this midweek, uh, well, in the middle of the week and over the weekend, a few that were postponed because uh, of frozen pitches in the UK. Uh but the big head, uh, but the big headline match was the Manchester Derby that happened on Friday. Just like we were talking about in the last segment, how the She Believes games will be on TV. That one was actually on NBCSN, uh, on Friday. Manchester City won 3-0. And Rose Lavelle didn't play again. I know you touched on that briefly, John. I have a very quick question for you. Do you think the fact that she doesn't play will alter her standing in any way with the national team? Which is, this is not an FAWSL recap question at all, but just a question that popped into my mind. I don't know. I think maybe if you consider the fact that the battle between her and, I guess, ostensibly Lindsay Horan for that last starting spot is close, then the fact that Lavelle isn't getting as much game time as Horan could certainly impact her performance. But uh, throughout U.S. national team history, club play has meant almost nothing <laughs> in terms I of whether. I wouldn't start now. <laughs> right. So you don't, you don't really know. And there are some positives of that, too. It's, it's, it's a weird phenomenon that actually does sometimes work out in the U.S.'s favor. But, uh, yeah, I would think that it, it would only matter if the lack of playing time then contributes to a dip in form for Lavelle in training. Yeah. Well, in that game, Abby Dahlkemper played. She's continuing a great uh, start to her career in Manchester City. As we mentioned, Tobin Heath didn't play. She's injured, but Christian Press played. She didn't really have a... uh, I mean, it wasn't really a game where Christian Press thrived at all. But um, at the end of the last week in games for the FAWSL, Chelsea is leading. They haven't uh, they have a five-point lead. I can't do math. Uh, over second place, Manchester City. And uh, United are behind them uh, with 32 points. That's one point behind Manchester City. And Arsenal are in fourth. They didn't have a great week. But, I mean, generally speaking, folks, the FAWSL table is kind of weird because between the canceled games, some teams have played 15 games. Some teams have played 15 matches and others have played 11. So, you know. Hopefully that starts to make sense at some point. <laughs> um, I think the moving on, I think the biggest women's soccer story in the U S this week was about visa fraud. <laughs> yeah. I said it was a light week, but I guess it, uh, I mean, 
There's nothing to shake up a light week like a case of visa fraud. So a to recap, in case you missed it, though, there is a great write-up on the Equalizer if you want to go read that. And it'll be a little bit more detailed than what I have. Um, global Premier Soccer, a now um, dead, for lack of a better word, I couldn't think of another one, now uh, dead, defunct uh, youth soccer organization. Their former CEO, Justin Carpell, was uh, charged by the U.S. Attorney in the District of Massachusetts with visa fraud. Apparently, the organization was paying teams for access to visas and defrauding immigration services. Uh, the two NWSL teams implicated in this are the now defunct Boston Breakers, who did the lion's share of the work, apparently filing more than 70 fraudulent uh, uh, visa applications, and Sky Blue FC, who filed more than 40 false applications. Uh, the Boston Globe has a write-up on this. They interviewed Christy Holly, who was the coach of Sky Blue from 2016 to 2017, and identified himself as the link between uh, the club and global premier soccer. Who uh, they were, like I said, they were paying for access to visas that they wouldn't get otherwise. And in, uh, by pretending the people that they were hiring from overseas were scouts for these NWSL teams, but in fact were just employees of Global Premier Soccer who did other work. Christy Holly did say that he benefited a little bit from it, but this, I mean, it was clearly the, that they were not working for these teams. Yeah, I got to tell you, there's not a lot about this that surprises me other than maybe the fact that NWSL clubs were directly involved because anybody who has spent any time at all in the American youth soccer scheme has seen how absolutely uh, corrupt it can be at certain levels. And um, this idea that if you bring, if you have a coach with a foreign act, a European accent, you know, that somehow that makes them a great coach that, that people will fall all over themselves. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that you're, you're trying to bring these coaches in from Europe. It doesn't surprise me in the, in the fact that, you know, obviously our immigration system is a complete mess. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that people would, would try to manipulate this process because again, with youth soccer, the money involved in youth soccer is insane. And the amount that people, especially considering that soccer is still uh, very much an upper class sport in the United States, the amount of money that people will pay uh, for these clubs is, is inevitably going to lead to people doing things that they wouldn't normally do. And um, when you get to the top tiers of American soccer and you have thousands and thousands of people all fighting for a limited number of college scholarships, which is still considered the brass ring of American youth soccer. Um, you create this system where the incentives are not necessarily uh, just or not necessarily in the best interest of the kids. And you're going to see people try to take advantage of that process. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing here. Yeah, and there are a few co-conspirators in the um, 
in the uh, case that were not named, but it looks like this, I mean, and a few individuals who were named in it, but not as co-conspirators, particularly from the breakers, this could be a little bit deeper or maybe a lot deeper. I don't know. Then we realize because there are some, what, at least one former owner of the breakers and a former director of soccer operations named in the justice department's press release. Yeah. I mean, as, as Steph Young pointed out pretty explicitly and as, as Jeff Kasuf did on the equalizer piece, um, there's only a couple of people this could be, and they are names that are pretty well known among the Woso community. So I don't, um, it seems like people are going to be pretty surprised when those names finally do come out that, that people who were, uh, considered, I, I would say at least with one of them, like a, a beloved, you know, person in the Woso community was probably involved in this. And, um, we also don't know. What's going to happen with Chris Holly going forward? Uh, I think this could get dicey. I, you know, mentioned that the, uh, the Louisville paper has now picked up on, on this and, and the connections of their brand new head coach. And, uh, obviously the governor of New Jersey was, uh, CC'd on some of these emails and is the owner of Sky Blue. And so there might be some political ramifications from this. The story, this seems like this is just the beginning of this story and that this is probably going to go a little bit deeper and probably to a, a bit of an uncomfortable level uh, for people who exist in, in our world. Yeah. And I mean, on Christy Holly specifically, he wasn't even hired with a lot of fanfare or, I mean, there were a lot of conversations about, I mean, just generally that why didn't this team end up hiring someone different? I remember actually being on this podcast and was I was asked about whether or not, you know, the fact that they hired a male coach, which is a, a very separate conversation entirely to this. Uh, why, I mean, why they, why there are only, there's only one head coach that's a, a woman in this league. But like I said, Christy Holly wasn't hired with the greatest fanfare. And well, this is going to, I mean, this is not, it's not a great look. It's not a great look for a lot of people. Yeah. I think the the maybe the thing that made people take a step back in the Holly hiring was that he seems, at least on the face of his record, to be a fairly mediocre coach. Now, yeah. was he just in a bad situation? And that well, I mean, obviously, we know Sky Blue was a bad situation from top down, from ownership to the general manager um, to the players and people wanting out. And, and now we've got some extra information on how bad it was. Yeah. So obviously that wasn't a good situation. So you could potentially have a very good coach in a bad situation, not do well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the, what I, what I took out of what you were saying about people kind of being lack of uh, not being excited is that it didn't see, it seemed more like what you see in other professional sports where very mediocre coaches get retread over and over and over versus, Hey, let's take a shot on this assistant um, who seems like they're an exciting, you know, candidate and, uh, let's see what they can do when finally given a chance at the head spot. Yeah. Thank you for cleaning up what I was saying. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, just adding, it's not really to necessarily, um, soil Christy Holly's reputation as a coach. He still seems 
like he's qualified. Uh, that was the uh, the fact that he worked as a U.S. soccer scout for a few years in between jobs was something that I, and he said that he was really familiar with the entire player pool in women's soccer, which is obviously an added benefit for somebody who's coaching a team. But uh, yeah, an entirely separate conversation. This being linked to a visa fraud scheme that the U.S. Department of Justice has called out and is charging people on. Yeah, that's not that's not a good look. Yeah. And you do. You know, one thing he did bring up that I thought had some merit um, was that he, he said that, you know, our lawyers told us we were doing everything right. And that if that's the case, that really stinks because most of us are not experts on visa law. And you're going to just listen to the people that are experts on it and you're going to trust their advice and you're going to trust that they have your best interest at heart. And then if you end up getting rolled into it, um, that's, there's a lot of collateral damage that's I'm assuming going to come out of this. Yeah. I believe either one of the co-conspirators or one of the individuals named in uh, the case was an immigration attorney out of Massachusetts. So yeah, I'm not surprised if a lot of people who fell for this and like you said, it's completely, right? you wouldn't be surprised. It's not something that you don't really fault a lot of people for because obviously they're not experts in it. Anyway, let's talk about something else. Uh, we actually do have a couple of questions from a listener. This is the worst segue in history. Sorry, folks. <laughs> but uh yeah, so... We asked for questions. We got some. Thank you very much to Tim Atos, who, if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, please feel free to tell me. Um, and we're returning back to looking forward to the NWSL season, which will start in April with the Challenge Cup. Um, one question that I think is really fun. Which perceived lower table NWSL team could be a surprise contender in 2021? John, I'm really bad at guessing. I'm going to let you go first. Yeah, I, I think this question is fun for two reasons, because the first part is that to decide which of your lower table teams are going to overachieve, you have to decide who is supposed to be on the lower end of the table. Yeah. So, but then in deciding that they're, so, they're going to be on the lower end of the, te- the table, then you have to argue against yourself to decide that they're going to do better. So <laughs> I thought it might be a, a little bit of a twist to, to go against what kind of the common perceptions are of teams. And I would say that I think Kansas City has a chance at doing better than people might perceive. And I think there's still some of the building blocks from the fairly good Utah teams that are still a part of this. Now, obviously they've, they've lost press and they lost Sauerbrunn and um, they lost O'Hara, even though O'Hara didn't really play for them that often. I thought that even though overall they did not do well in the challenge cup, that their setup was unique. And I thought it nearly worked for them and they have, are coming into a new situation. They've got some young, exciting players. They have a, a new owner or new owners who seem very supportive. They've got a coach who's very well-respected. They've got an opportunity to kind of build something of their own 
from scratch. So I would say they're the team that I am most excited to see where they end up. Um, I do think there's going to be a little shifting among the top four or five teams that people aren't really prepared for. Um, I'm not sure in total people have seen how the power dynamic has shifted among the top five, but I would say uh, right underneath them, whether it's sky blue, Kansas city, or even OL rain, I'm kind of excited to see who shakes out and who can get into that fifth or sixth playoff spot. Do you treat the Washington spirit as a foregone conclusion of one of the top teams in this league? I think they're probably the second best team. Yeah. Okay. Me too. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I'll just steal John's answers. (laughs) (laughs) But no, you had very good answers. I would probably have said, I would probably have said sky blue. In addition, you, you threw them in there at the end. I like their front line so much. I think that front line, um, that they finished the, the, well, they, I guess they played at times in the challenge cup, but mostly in the fall series when they, when they finally went to purse being back up top, um, with, um, Anamano and, and Monahan, I thought was just a really, really solid front line. And if they can get just a little bit of service and they can get Zerboni doing her thing in the midfield with Cujo and their back line, maybe not, might not be flashy but they've got some solid defenders in there. Mm-hmm. And I think when you combine and then you have Sheridan behind them, you know, backstopping that there's some, there's some good pieces in there for sky blue. Yeah. I mean, I think since Freya Coombe showed up, she's clearly, and basically after her interim period, she's very clearly had this idea of wanting to play this attacking sky blue team. And, you know, for some reason, I mean, there was just not a lot of games to get that game plan going last year. So, and then, I mean, there was obviously the Mallory Pugh thing that didn't end up happening at all, but the plan to be an attacking team is still there, obviously. And I'm, you know, it looks like they'll actually have a season's worth of games to demonstrate what that looks like. So that's something that I've been excited about for now two years, I guess, or just one. I don't know. Who could say how long it's been? But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that would be the, that would be the team that I would say if I had to add to you, but yeah, but you already mentioned them. So we're just expanding on what you were saying. Um, another question for Tim, from Tim is what is one additional player move each NWSL team should make before the season? That's a pretty loaded question. It is. And it's, you know, you got 10 teams involved. So how do you want to run through this? Um, you know, how about you start with the team that you think needs most, that needs to add more players stat or. Well, I think, um, that the OL rain needs to figure out what they're doing at goalkeeper. Yes. That's such a, it's such an odd because they had, what was it? Two years ago, they had three starting goalkeepers. Yeah, and, they and now they don't have crisis. right, and now they don't have any that are clear <laughs> choices. So that's that's a pretty big swing. And so I'm, I was looking at the rosters of some of the other teams, and I thought there might be an opportunity. We talked, I think, maybe two weeks ago about Brick Eckerstrom retiring and yeah. how that would have been an option. But I think maybe Caitlin Rowland is somebody you might be able to pry away from North Carolina. Yeah, now and, that Casey Murphy's there, right? And um, 
maybe Abby Smith from Kansas City. Mm. If you if you think Barnhart can hold up for the duration of a season, because Smith is a player, what four years ago was getting call ups into the into the national team. Yeah, this is a good keeper who cannot get on the field because she just happens to have this legend of the last 15 years of women's soccer in America, Nicole Barnhart in front of her. So maybe there's a way you can get Abby Smith to to come out uh, to Tacoma. And I wonder if Hugh Williams will decide, okay, now it's time for me to play Abby Smith. There's a new manager there. Right. And you you look at like OL's roster, they have something like eight midfielders who could start and five, four, they have too many players. You think any of them can play goalkeeper? (laughs) Right. So you, you just say, well, hey, let's package up, let's make, let's make Kansas City a deal they can't turn down, yeah. right? Let's give them a really good forward and a really good midfielder, and get a goalkeeper in return. Yeah. Now, do you think the squad is basically good to go after that? Yeah, yeah they're just stacked. They just yeah. have so much talent, which was so weird. Maybe it was because Farid was a new coach, or maybe it's just because the Challenge Cup was such a disjointed competition. But they were so disappointing last year. They, yeah. They're, their performance did not match their talent at all. Yeah, they do have a great roster. I was pretty surprised by that myself. They were just so I wow. don't know, I don't yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think they were interesting at all to watch last year. Yeah. No yeah, sense. can you can you decide what what they were trying to do? No. There you go. No, it was like, so unclear. Like other teams, even if it doesn't work, you can tell what they're trying to do and the rain just did not seem to have a, a plan. Yeah. So at least for them, it's a pretty straightforward sw- uh, fix. Well, we like to think trades cannot be straight. They don't always have to be straightforward, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, one team I'm curious about is Louisville because obviously they're they're starting from scratch completely. Yeah. Do, I think they could yeah. use another midfielder. Yeah. But I don't know what do they have to trade at this point. I don't know. I mean, they don't. I mean, I guess just money, right? Well, I, so I was thinking, and Holly kind of talked about this in one of his press calls in the last week or two about wanting to learn more about the intentions of Press and Heath because mm. they obviously took a big swing. Yeah. Maybe if they can find out when Press and Heath are coming back and where they want to go maybe you could trade those rights for a couple of players because yeah. they've got to do something like, otherwise they're just going to, it could be really bad. It could be a yeah. really ugly season for them if they don't figure out something. Cause they just, they don't even have like almost every team you can look at, even the ones that don't have a lot of depth and you can say, this is probably their starting 11 or here are like the racing's roster is, all over the place and it's really tough to figure out how they're going to kind of hodgepodge these players together into a starting 11. And then obviously they're an expansion team plus they're young. That's probably not a recipe for success. So I think anything they can do to get a couple more veterans in is going to pay dividends. Yeah, I know. I remember during the draft, Christy Holly was saying that the priority was just getting players who will play and not necessarily fit a certain system. And I mean, I guess you could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that works until you got to pick a lineup. Yeah. I was like, I mean, you could probably, I mean, maybe I'm just being a little too idealistic, but you could probably accomplish a little bit of both. 
Yeah. Where hopefully all of the players you're deciding will play for you right away will also be able to fit a lineup or, you know, an 18 player squad. But yeah, I mean, they're... yeah, I think the only decision they made in that whole build up to the expansion draft, including the actual draft, was what they did with Chicago. Like they really took mm-hmm. advantage of Chicago, I felt like. But yeah. other than that, their decisions were not good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if they really end up with not enough players or just a squad that isn't good enough to compete, the selections of Press and Heath in the expansion draft will, I mean, that will probably be the one thing people look at and be like, well, maybe you wasted those choices. Yeah, yep. And not just one, you picked two players that definitely weren't going to be playing for you right away and maybe never, but definitely not right away. And two, with, you know, with, with women's soccer, I think having an environment where players want to come is so important. And I feel like they have that with their ownership structure. But if they go out and get absolutely pasted this year, nobody's going to want to come next year. Yeah. And that's going to be a problem for them. And I'm actually just remembering that the third player they selected in that expansion draft, Alana Kennedy, is not coming. She yeah. signed a permanent deal with Tottenham in – England. So now, wow, that makes it sound worse. <laughs> Good luck, Louisville. Um, uh, throwing it in the other direction, what teams do you think are basically locked in, good to go, maybe need a couple of finishing touches, but really it's they're, – they're looking good shape? I would say Portland, Washington, Chicago are all pretty well set. Um, I do think that Chicago is probably a bit imbalanced. I think they have eight defenders who could uh, potentially start, six midfielders who could potentially start. You don't need to be too deep at every position on the back line in the midfield, and I do still feel like they're missing one difference maker up top. I don't know if I mean, difference makers are difference makers and they're rare and they're expensive and they're hard to get. So it's, it's difficult to find a situation where you can pry somebody away. But the fact that they have what I would say is double depth on two lines, they could probably put together a pretty nice package if they wanted to get somebody. The one player, this is just a wish list. This is not, I've heard anything or whatever, but, um, I wonder if they could they could get Simone Charlie from Portland. Um, Didn't she I just sign an extension with them? She did. Um, but you look at Portland's lineup, and Charlie's a good, exciting player. I don't know how she's going to get on the field yeah. out there. They just have so much talent, and they're so strong up front, uh, especially depending on how they use Sinclair, how high Sinclair plays. But they Portland just strengthened their midfield, too which could push Sinclair higher up the field. And then you look at what Portland did with the draft last year with Smith and Weaver, and you just wonder if Charlie's going to get, get chances up there this year. Yeah. Yeah. They Portland are really, really stacked up front, which, I mean, I think we started to see what the Portland vision looked like, not so much during the challenge cup, but during the fall series, and that's something I think that they'll be able to translate into at least this challenge cup that's going to precede the NWSL season, but that they're a team that I'm looking at as probably a top contender. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
Who are the teams that we haven't mentioned yet in terms of their rosters? Sky Blue North- did talk about a little bit. North Carolina Courage, yes. Yeah. They've they had quite an lot. off season. Yeah. yeah. And you know, like it didn't it didn't seem like a huge deal um when Mewis left because obviously she's going over for a period of time. And it was similar, I thought, when Heath and Press kind of went over, like, okay, you're going to sign like a year deal and we're in the middle of a pandemic and the U.S. is not handling it well. So who cares? Like, go over there. Mm-hmm. But when Dahl Kemper signed, her deal was much longer. And it was, and it started in January too. Like she's gone. Right. So I don't think she's coming back. And that one could really hurt because obviously the entire strategy of North Carolina being able to throw their outside backs into the attack to essentially attack much of the game with eight players uh, is not possible unless you have two center backs who can lock down and, pr- and protect yourself against the counterattacks. And that was obviously Abby Erseg and, and Dahl Kemper getting that done the past four years. Um, and now you're missing one of those, those key key pieces. And I was looking at that roster and I, I mean, there's, there's not another Abby Dahlkemper on that roster. And, yeah. and she's as close to irreplaceable, I think, as you get for that position. So it's not easy, but they, they got to figure out how they're going to make all of those, those pieces work together because they, that, the, the, the Dahlkemper loss, I think this is going to sound controversial is a bigger loss than done because mm. done you still had Mewis, you still had Dabinia, you still had Denise Sullivan, you could still drop uh, Kristen Hamilton into the 10. You still had good pieces that were all proven difference makers. Do- losing Dahl Kemper is huge. That's a huge, huge piece for them, and I don't know how uh, they replace it. Yeah. You think... I mean, I don't, I don't think they're probably the top contender anymore. No. But do you think maybe there's still hope for a playoff spot? Oh, for sure. I yeah. think they're probably number four is where I would put them right now. I think with Williams, with Hamilton, with McDonald, with Sullivan, with Dabinia, like they still, right? They still have a yeah. lot of nice, a lot of nice pieces. Um, they're still going to win a lot of games. They're just not going to dominate the way that they have the past. I guess, what was it, 2017, 2018, 2019 were probably the years where they were just running through people. Yeah, yeah. Who doesn't love a little bit of uh, up and down right. in this league? Um, I think one team we haven't talked about yet is Orlando. Yeah, they need another defender, I think. Um, and then losing Pickett was, I think, a little bit of a gut punch too because I, I just don't know – I just don't know who their back line is. You've got yeah. Krieger and Riley and then then what's the rest of it? Sonnet is not there. I mean she didn't even play for them, but yeah. I mean I don't have the roster open in front of me, but they probably need some help there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean And they've got nice pieces, right? They've got good midfielders, they've got good forwards, but there were I'm trying to think if this was 2018 or 2019, or it might even been both years where you could just see the look on Krieger's face where like, it was like she was trying to defend everybody by herself at times and and just didn't get a lot of help. And Harris would, you know, there were games where Harris was amazing because she had 20 saves, but then there were also games where she faced 30 shots and six of them went in. 
Yeah. And it doesn't matter how great the saves are on the other 20. If yeah. Six of them are in the back of a net. Um, you're not winning that game. And, and again, that's not blaming that on Harris. It's just saying they, they just were not a good squad. I think they've picked up some nice pieces. They, um, the, the trade they did with Kansas City, I thought could help them too. But again, that strengthened their midfield or their front line. Uh, and I think they need to do a little bit more for their back. Yeah, I don't think the winning strategy is to uh, try to outscore your opponents because uh, you're making your goalkeeper face 30 shots a game and she's going to concede a bunch of those because you're already throwing a bunch at her. Oh, Houston. We haven't talked about Houston. Yeah, I I mean, obviously they won the Challenge Cup, so uh, they're in in pretty good shape. Maybe one more defender. I think that, um, you know, they they have this interesting conundrum with, with Haley Hansen, do they play her in the midfield? Do they play her at right back? And that's always been um, one of the big things. And then um, obviously I thought Katie Naughton coming in was really, really big for them last year. I thought that they probably did not get as much uh, as they needed out of Oyster last year. And maybe that was just, you know, maybe she just didn't have a good challenge cup, but she was somebody who I thought was going to come in and, and maybe be a little bit stronger. Um, so maybe she just has a better season this year, but they might still need one more outside back to kind of shore things up there. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, I think for the dash, it's about fo- uh, making sure last year wasn't a total fluke, but I think they look in good enough shape to make sure that that's the case. I think really the only team you have to worry because I, my big takeaway from last year overall for the NWSL is that all of the teams looked competitive. Yeah. But I think really the only team we worry about is Louisville in that department. Yeah. Next year them. And then, you know, I think Orlando still has to yeah. step on the field and play better. They've made smart moves. Um, it, it's interesting to listen to their players talk about Skinner because they're all very high on Skinner which you necessarily wouldn't expect because you can, you can be respectful to your coach with not being effusive in your praise. And they're, they all seem to kind of go over the top with their praise of him. So it'll be interesting to see whether he can, he can get them to actually perform better now that he has some better pieces. Right. That was, the, that's the thing for me too. I was like, they're very high on him, but I don't think Mark Skinner has proved himself in NWSL right. yet. I know he came here with, a very nice reputation after working in his native England, but I don't think he's, I do not think he's proven himself here yet. I mean, there's obviously time he could do that this year, but I just don't think he's gotten there yet. And I think that that stands out for now anyway. Yeah. hundred percent agree. Yeah. Um, so thank you to Tim for those questions. They provided quite a bit of, um, provided quite a bit of a chat. That was really nice. Um, I think that does it for what was, you know, a pretty light week in American women's soccer next week. I promise will not be as light for all of you listeners. Um, Thanks for hanging out again, John. Much appreciated as always. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, And a couple of things. Thanks as always to our fantastic editor, fantastic producer, Jacqueline Purdy, and to anyone celebrating a very happy Lunar New Year to you.
Breaking up is hard to do, but when it comes to your wireless carrier, you should have left a while ago. You deserve better. Xfinity Mobile. Break free from the big three. Get unlimited with 5G included for $30 a month when you get four lines on Xfinity Mobile. Prices may vary and are subject to change. Reduced speeds at 20 gigabytes per line.